Support for this episode of Script Apart comes from Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Support for this episode also comes from Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner, and today, guys, we're blasting off to the distant planet of Pandora. That's right, Avatar The Way of Water, you might have heard of it, is James Cameron's long-awaited sequel to one of the biggest movies of all time. And on this week's show, I'm joined by two of its incredibly talented co-writers. You might know Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silva as the screenwriting pair behind the brilliant Planet of the Apes reboot trilogy, not to mention 2015's Jurassic World. If you're familiar with those movies, you'll probably be able to understand exactly why Cameron chose them as collaborators for this follow-up to his epic 2009 sci-fi fantasia. Both of them, not unlike Avatar, wove clever social commentary on man's exploitation of the natural world into exciting set pieces and massive spectacle. Where the first Avatar was beautiful in its simplicity, The Way of Water is a much more complex beast. It has a number of moving parts and interlocking storylines, some of which are seeds for films to come. This is actually the first in a number of sequels that Amanda and Rick have worked on in production now. The film picks up with our heroes from the first movie, Jake Sully, played by Sam Worthington, and Natiri, played by Zoe Saldana, fighting another epic fight 14 years after the Battle of the Hallelujah Mountains. Parenthood. The pair have had a family and now have an even more pronounced reason to protect their land from the colonizers from Earth, who are seeking to make Pandora humanity's new home, having wrecked their own. Rick and Amanda, who've been married since 1989 and working together since 1992's The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, told me all about how the way of water came together on the page. In the conversation you're about to hear, we get into how they, Cameron, and fellow co-writer Josh Friedman brought certain characters back from the dead. We talk about the Mowgli-esque origins of Spider, one of the film's most fascinating new additions to the series, and the environmental truths about our own climate change-stricken world that the film takes aim at. There's also a thorough breakdown of that death in the film's final act, and I even attempt to speak the language of the Navi. Needless to say, it doesn't go great. Um, this is the part where I normally tell you that what you're about to hear is a spoiler conversation, so don't listen if you haven't seen Avatar The Way of Water yet. The box office receipts for this film suggest that if you're listening, there's a high chance you've already checked it out. It's nearing 2 billion at the time of recording. All the same, I'll repeat it anyways. If you haven't yet seen Avatar The Way of Water, you may want to hit pause, go away and catch the film in cinemas now then come back as we dive into every plot point in this incredible movie. A huge thank you as ever to our Patreon community for helping make this episode possible. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you'd like to get involved there. 
Okay, with no further ado, this is the wonderful Amanda Silva and Rick Jaffa on the first draft secrets of Avatar The Way of Water. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hey guys, such an enormous pleasure to have you with us on Script Apart. Um, I did actually Google how to say hello in Navi. Um, let me see. Kalktik? I think I'm probably mispronouncing that. And James Cameron is listening somewhere and wanting to throw his phone against the wall or something in frustration. Well, he's here right now, so let's bring him in. <laughs> <laughs> I think you nailed it. I think, I think you nailed it too. Not. I mean, I'm not, my, my, my Navi is a little rusty, it's a little rusty. but uh, I think that was really good. Well, it's a delight to have you with us, not just because I loved Avatar The Way of Water, which we'll be breaking down in detail today, but because Jurassic World, the Planet of the Apes movies, these are joyously smart examples of blockbuster entertainment that that managed to both thrill and have something to say. I love all these films. I wanted to start off by asking what you think the shared DNA might be between a lot of these recent projects that you've worked on, guys, beyond obviously their their huge success at the box office. It, it seems like that the reverence towards nature that's in the way of water and, and the film's fury towards those that mess with nature, that's alive in Jurassic, that's alive in, in Planet of the Apes. Is it a coincidence that environmentalism is something that's ended up spilling into your work a lot uh, over the last decade or so? I don't think it is a coincidence, but on the other hand, I, it wasn't something that we actually sat down and planned or mapped out in terms of our careers. And uh, so uh, with the first Planet of the Apes, with the rise of the Planet of the Apes, it really just started off as a character piece, uh, which I, I think is also part of the shared DNA, but you can get back to that later if you want to. But um, it was really a character piece. and. There was a point, though, we were in the middle of the first draft when I said to Amanda, I said, man, I don't know if this movie is going to get made or not. But if it does, there's going to if it does, there's going to be a lot of primates really pulling for us because you know? <laughs> we realized suddenly it's, it's a bit of an it's, you know, it's an animal rights movie. And Which and, is something we believed in. We do. Kind of very came much to so. work, but we didn't we didn't write it in order to make a point. It kind of grew out of the passion that we were bringing to yeah. the character and the, of Caesar and his situation. Yeah. So, and it's the same, you know, with way of the water, it, it, we, you don't really set out. I mean, I mean, Jim might have a slightly different answer, uh, but for us, you know, we certainly believed in what we were saying uh, wholeheartedly uh, in terms of environmentalism and, and, and the human, uh, you know, destruction of it or certainly uh, mishandling and so forth. But, but it, it does, you know, you can't have your heart on your, on your sleeve. You just have to write really toward emotion and character. And I, I think, you know, it's about finding emotional truth. And then from that, if, if the message gets across and that's great, what do you oh, think? That's a really, yeah. I mean, that's in terms of that. Yeah. We, we are animal lovers in this house and we've been involved with, uh, you know, a wolf sanctuary and an apes sanctuary and, uh, and, 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 and other kinds of environmental, you know, nonprofits. And, and, uh, so we do, you know, we really do believe in it. Um, but again, we never really mapped. I think it's just kind of happened. You know, I think everybody writes from what they love and what they know and what they believe and it bubbles into the work or filters into the work. That's so nice. And and just on cue there, as you were talking about your love for animals, there was oh, a dog in the background there. Yeah. Kind of oh, really? Because we don't have dogs. <laughs> that, that's weird. <laughs> um, you, you kind of like touched on it there a little bit. There's, there's something extraordinary about all of those franchises that we just mentioned. In Jurassic, Apes, and now The Way of Water, your antagonists are often human. And, and our empathy as an audience is with the creature, the alien, the outsider. You know, logic suggests that as humans, we're we're wi wired to root for the home team, if you like. But but time and time again, you've managed to place our empathy as an audience in the thing that man is out to destroy within that story. And where where do you think that came from? As just a, a storytelling quirk of of your movies? Well, I'm not sure where what the origin of it was. I, I think I I think that the idea of of um. I think it began with apes. Oh, it definitely that did. we began exploring this, mm -hmm. um, and this idea that there would be rooting interest for 
and relatability to a different species seemed like a wonderful story to tell and the right way to reboot uh, the Apes franchise, but a way to stretch. I think science fiction in general is a way to stretch human empathy towards the other, allow humans to understand um, what makes them human and also to explore uh, struggles and prejudices and difficulties if, if through the through the uh, lens of another uh, and to truly put yourself in another's point of view. So we started with this kind of passionate love of Caesar. We wanted to explore what it would mean. You know, when we when we began with Caesar, he was kind of a Pinocchio figure, like he wanted to be a real boy. And so we we followed him. He, he didn't start as a revolutionary. He started wanting to be one of us. Yeah. I mean, our pitch, I don't know if it's our original pitch or we just came to understand it in the writing, but uh, it was with Caesar, it was Pinocchio to Moses. And that was his <laughs> character journey. And that was it. It's like we, we could land on that, whether it's one movie or three movies, Pinocchio to Moses. So I would... I look again, it goes back to uh, and Amanda talked about, you know, rooting interest in emotional and the audience's emotional investment in a character. So uh, and so that's what that's kind of what we try to do. And it doesn't really matter ultimately if uh, it's an animal or a human or an alien or whatever it is, um, uh, you know, you, you keep an eye on where the audience is emotionally at all times. And uh and so on Jurassic, you know, when we we you know, we met with Stephen, we had had a, had a had a very general meeting, and he threw out some, you know, incredible ideas and wonderful ideas about rebooting it and so forth. And then when we went back to him, you know, we said, look, the the challenge here, the goal for us, this is at the very early stage, is if we can get uh, rooting interest for an emotional investment in Velociraptors. Like some of the, you know, Velociraptors, like the biggest villains in the, in the you know, in those first three, <laughs> scariest, terrifying. And, and if we can turn that around, you know, that, that would be a wonderful thing. It's a real reason to try to tackle the script and so forth. So, uh, so it, it, it does get down to, to characters uh, and, and where the audience is in terms of their investment in them. Just so we have a baseline for how you typically work before we move on to, uh, yeah, the situation with James, which I understand was was quite a different scenario. Um, I think I read that you regularly get story ideas from articles that you've snipped out of newspapers and printed from the internet that um, you'll either kind of crank to some extreme um, or you'll combine with, with another idea from another article. Um, in the case of Planet of the Apes, I think you did both, Rick. Um, I believe you were on a little solo trip with a, a stack of articles that you collected over a matter of weeks. Um, you mapped them out on the floor and then you lit up when you pieced one about like a, a pet chimp next to another about uh, genetic engineering. That was the spark for that movie. Um, is that still your process? And yeah, what else do you do when you're in that ideation phase looking for inspiration? Yeah, the thing about all those articles, they were they were articles that we had read and liked over a period of years. I mean, not just weeks. So it's oh, wow. like you you're really know, holding so on to those. The first uh I don't remember how far how long it'd been, but the first article we had read uh uh was about a chimp that, you know, was raised as a real boy and uh, yeah, as a, as a child in a household who, you know, it's puberty and, and hormonally goes, goes, uh, goes ape, if you will. And, uh, and so anyway, we, we, we talked about that and he attacks but, his own. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's really destructive. Oh yeah. And he's a beloved member of the household, but he wreaks havoc because he's reached puberty. And, and as Rick said, he's, it, it's his natural um, journey to, I mean, and apes at a certain age get violent, can get violent. Yeah, they do. And there's lots of stories like that. And, and, and so we thought for years, well, that would be a really fascinating movie, but we couldn't. We thriller. Couldn't we thought it was thriller. a thriller. Yeah, we couldn't yeah. figure it out. And, and then it was the, the, the process of uh, the genetic engine. They just, the stacks just happened to be next to each other. So, but we had been clipping out articles and reading things uh, for years on that. So is that still our process? It really depends. We still read a lot. Uh, you know, we read uh, nonfiction. We read the newspaper every day, 
cover to cover. We uh, try to read magazines that are in areas of interest to us. Uh, and so still, if something's, you know, uh, pops an idea, we'll, 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 we'll keep track of it. And, and then sometimes, uh, well, I guess it's similar to the age thing, but sometimes, uh, we'll be reading. In fact, this just happened. We've been reading, uh, we've been working on an idea for years, science fiction, thriller idea, and we haven't quite cracked it. And the answer's out there somewhere, you know? And so sometimes, you know, you'll read an article. Oh, yeah, this may really help this other project. And then you you have that article and then you realize, well, no, they're, they're never going to marry those two ideas. It's just not possible. But then you go ahead and keep this other idea because something sparked, sparked the idea. So at any rate, and then also we find that once we uh, commit to a project, the universe suddenly starts finding these articles for you, the research for you. So if you're going to do, you know, uh, something on, uh, I don't know, wolves, for example, before, every time you open the paper, there's a story about, you know, a wolf killing in Montana or, or you know, uh, a gray wolf showed up in California for the first time in 100 years or, you know, things like that. And so it's really weird. Or, or an article about ancient man mm-hmm. and wolves. And wolves, yeah. Sudden, all of a sudden you feel like, because I know this sounds kind of spooky, but when it comes to a really solid story, it's, it's, you don't feel like you're making it up. You feel like you're uncovering it. You feel like you're finding it. Like the story already exists, but you're just on the trail of it. So you got to keep digging and digging and you kind of know when you're digging in the wrong area or you come up with something that isn't right. But you also know when you, when you find that that right moment that you've been looking for. The other thing these articles do for us is that, uh, especially if you're writing about something that's not part of your own experience. So it lends an authenticity to the work, which is really important because, you know, uh, one of the, I think the most fun aspect of what we do or part of the process is the research we do. And, uh, we do a ton of it reading, you know, uh, um, Watching, you know, film if that if that's appropriate, whether it's a documentary or just another movie that's whatever we can yeah. find. But if you don't do the actual research, then suddenly you realize you're basing it on uh, on a television show that you watched or <laughs> someone else's research. You know. So, how much of that typical process were you able to bring over to this very specific project, working with James, who has a very particular way of working? Well. One of the things, you know, there's something called Pandorapedia. I don't know if you're <laughs> I've aware. heard of this, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's defines everything on Pandora, but also I guess the RDA, the human, everything, I mean, everything Jim, Jim, avatar. Jim, Jim Cameron knows every rivet on every spaceship. He knows how the ships are built. He knows the botany. He knows about the tides and the and the gaseous mixtures in the air and and so we we went to Avatar Boot Camp at first, you know, learning about Avatar Land, and we also studied the original movie, and we talked a lot about what was that kind of um, numinous quality. Mm-hmm. That's what Jim calls it. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of feeling of awe that the audience has seeing the movie, and we t- the original movie, and we talked about how to try and tap into that. For this for this one. So that's where we kind of started before we start, before we even thought about moving forward to be really educated, to have our feet firmly planted on Pandora. Yeah. Um and again, just the word research, but we did just a ton of research on uh on all of it. And you know, for example, I think you mentioned the tides, mm-hmm. but you know, since so a uh, wave of water, the way of water ends up with dealing with the water and the ocean and tides, like we studied. Like what would the gravitational forces on Pandora, how would that affect tides and tidal locks? And I mean, so Jim was uh, very uh, adamant that everything be real scientifically, you know? Uh, Oh yeah. So I I don't, I don't want to lean too far into that because the truth is, and maybe we'll get to this, but you know, the mantra was character and emotion the whole time, character, character, character. So uh, but having said that, you know, uh, in terms of 
this question. Uh, we did an enormous amount of research and reading and discussion. And, and it's interesting, after a while, you start to wonder, well, maybe Pandora's the right, it's kind of like the Twilight Zone. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. So do we have, is that flower in our backyard or is it in Jake's? Is it beneath <laughs> the home tree? What, you know, and you really start to lose grip on reality. <laughs> but the idea is that that the life on Pandora for Jake Sully and the, the Sully family and whatever other characters we meet is real. It's, it's an alternate reality and it has to feel real on all the different levels. Yeah. And then the same with the RDA, like how exactly, how long can they go without breathing? Ardmore, self-major, the self-rigid How do those exoskeletons work and all that stuff? The guns, that yeah. stuff too, the hardware. There's a story I've heard about how when James brought on board his his writers for, for these Avatar sequels, he handed them... Uh, Pandorapedia, yes, this giant dossier of all his thoughts on every aspect of the world of Avatar. And um, yeah, one of the things he he asked of his collaborators was to digest all that information, then go away and come up with an idea to kind of get things started. A character, an animal, a plot beat, it could, it could be anything. Um, can you remember what it was that you put forward that day to kind of help win James's trust if, if that story is indeed true? It wasn't really like that. I mean, I love the question so much. I mean, the the idea that we would add to the future Pandorapedia and, and that we did in the room, but it didn't happen when we were at the top. At the top, he he kind of cast the room, meaning he figured out which writers he wanted in there with him. Um, and then we all went to boot camp together. And it was after that that we began creating new stuff. Um, but bef- did you want to jump no, in? I'm just trying to remember if you know, he, he, uh, the, the, I think the, the greatest thing that he did in the beginning was, you know, he had been collecting notes for years and ideas, uh, about, about the, what the sequels would be and even stuff that wasn't in the first avatar ideas for, uh, characters or, uh, dynamics between characters and, and animals and stuff. And, and there was like 800 pages. And so, they were in binders, but he sat down with us and it was like, we went through almost every idea and page. And so that really opened up our minds. But what I'm not really remembering is if did that come first or did it? He, at one point he sent us, meaning us and the other two writers, Josh Friedman and Shane Salerno off to come up with ideas and then present him to so the four of us and we presented them on whiteboards when he came in yeah and that was exciting because there were new ideas there that he hadn't thought of but what was very exciting was that there were ideas that he had thought of that he hadn't shared with us <laughs> and i remember he was standing he walked and he goes okay and for example the quaritch you know for lack of a better uh description the super posse that he ends up with you know we we all of us i don't know which one of the four of us but all of us that was one of the things we pitched him but he'd already had that idea so he said quartz super posse check and then he just went down other things that we'd come up with which had indicated to us in some ways that there was already a, a mind meld starting to happen you know with the five of us which just got stronger and stronger as the room went on um so, uh, but I don't think there was any like one specific thing that, uh, I do want to say though, yeah. that when he came in with those pages of ideas that he'd had between the two avatar movies, um, it was mind blowing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we started, we started like giggling the because we just couldn't it believe how fun it was. well, how fun it was and how big, how, how many ideas there were. Mm-hmm. And then it quickly became apparent that one of the main jobs that we had in this room which lasted about six months was to try and wrangle these ideas into three movies and um there were so many of them and there was so much that this you know it's a huge challenge i mean if you watch this movie um just two you see how how big it is and how it escalates kind of naturally and and the kind of the wonder of these new characters um and worlds but it gets much bigger from like he's just getting started so um so that's that's was one of the main the main yeah. things we worked on but you know i 
did come up in the room. I mean, it wasn't oh, like yeah. we just, I mean, you know, and, and by the way, sometimes ideas would come up and one of the great things about Jim is that he, uh, I've said this before, but he's like tireless and fearless. And that was, he instilled that in us from the very beginning. And so sometimes one of us would come up with an idea and uh, pitch it to the room. And he would say, uh, most times, not sometimes he would say, ah, no, no, that's not, I don't like it. But sometimes he'd say, well, let's talk about that. Let, let's go down that road. And we would just, you know, pound that idea. I mean, to study it, look at it, go with it, run with it. Where would it go? What's the drawbacks? What's it, what are the good? And, and we would, you know, vet that idea on and on and on. And then eventually it made it into it or we just let it go. You know, if it didn't fit, we didn't, it didn't fit. Um, so, uh, but anyway, it's funny. I, you know, we've been working, we've been riding together a long, long time. And to this day, a lot of times we'll say, wait a minute, was that my idea? Or was that your idea? We can't remember. <laughs> it's the same with the room. Uh, but most of it, but it is Jim, but, it, but just to be clear, Jim's movie beginning the, you know, from the beginning to where it is now. I mean, it's, you know, the ideas that he came in with were like Amanda said, just kind of mind blowing. We all contributed. We all contributed and he was very generous and open um, and happy to collaborate. He's a great collaborator. Um, uh, But, uh, but it does feel like we're midwives in a way. Some, Some ways. Yeah. Hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. If you've written a script and wondering what step to take next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers, like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals. It's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay wants to help. Head to wescreenplay.com to find out more or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You mentioned the sheer excess of ideas in, in the writer's room for these Avatar sequels. That explains something I've, I've been told about these, these movies and, and The Way of Water. Am I right in thinking the first draft and your initial outline of how The Way of Water was going to unfold, you ended up breaking that movie in two, right? So a decision was made to move a lot of elements from that first draft into Avatar 3. Um, obviously, you know, we've got to be careful here about spoiling the films ahead, as I, I understand that things have been repurposed for, for Avatar 3 and beyond. But is there anything you can tell me about what that first draft looked like, what the sort of different beats were, different characters, anything like that? Talk me through what changed as best you can, guys. When we came into the writer's room, the job was three movies. We were going to break down this material into three distinct movies, each with a beginning, middle and end, but it would launch a saga. So it is also one continuous saga. Um, and uh, and we didn't know who was going to have what movie because it was Rick and I, Josh Friedman and Shane Salerno were the kind of the three writing groups. And um, we didn't know who would have which movie, but we all of us together in the room beat out all three of the movies. Um, and this started in July by Christmas time. Jim was Jim kind of assigned us our different movies and we got the first movie, but there was a lot of material in there. And the burden on the first movie is also to launch the story. So 
you know, you have you have to establish that the first act of the first movie was the hardest. I mean, we banged our heads against the wall, all of us, in beating it out because you really had to, you know, define the new normal. What is Pandora like these years later? Um, you have to establish all the characters in the Sully family, Quaritch returning. I mean, there's just a lot to get on the table, a lot of complicated stuff um, from Quaritch's, uh, you know, becoming blue, he and his posse, to Kiri and the provenance, you know, like how how she's born out of Grace's avatar. The first script was very, the, the outline for it, which was very detailed, we weren't pulling any surprises, but the script as pages started being created by us and by Jim was very, very long, like long and unwieldy because it had too much stuff in it. Um, So Jim has said that we pulled something. Jim called us one day and he said, look, I'm going to create, you know, two has got to be two movies. It's just too much for one movie. And so in figuring out how to do that, one of the things we did was we pulled something. He, Jim said it's we pulled it raw and bleeding, well, bleeding yeah. out of uh, out of A2. I can't tell you what it is, but it's in A3 now. Um, and there are other kind of things did shift back and forth. It has to because each movie has to have a, a reason for being. It has to uh, feel distinct and complete, as I was saying. So there was some shuffling that had to be done at that point. But there was a there was a freedom because. First of all, let me to back up. So we all wrote on each treatment for each of the three movies, original mm-hmm. movies. We did the movie one or two first and then you know, did it consecutively over time. Not like, you know, this week, you know, Monday, we're going to write two, you know, by Thursday, we're going to write three. It wasn't like that. It was like it, it was over time. By the time we wrote as a group, the treatment for the last film, we were really cooking with gas as they say we you know we uh we knew each other's moves we we knew exactly how to present it and and knew the beats and we've been living with these characters in the story for six months by the time we write that wrote that last one so but the first one was uh kind of our first foray into writing as a group and so the uh the original pages we 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 knew it was going to be long. You know? Well, we were getting to know the characters, right? Yeah, yeah. I think in some of the original pages, it was the kids um, in the ruins talking to each other, discovering, yeah. you know. Um, and so all of a sudden, we let oh, it, here's Kiri's voice, well, and the, Sloak, yeah. you know. And the culture, we were getting to understand the culture. Yeah. It was very cultural. Anyway, so the truth is, though, we, we talked to Jim and he says, man, this is all great, but it's really going to be way long and so we asked jim so well should we start cutting now should we start back on page one like let's just do the first 40 pages and try to get it down and he said he thought about it and then he said no let's let's just go for it you know let's let's not you know we spent all that time on this material let's 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 see what we've got and so that's how we ended up with this gigantic kind of uh you know epic for the first movie so but uh but anyway though I, it, it worked i mean you know it's only jim can do it, it's like when he called us and said no no we're gonna we're gonna make it two films but don't you feel like three is epic as well oh my god just wait yeah no. and then four i mean it's just it's, they're it's, all epic yeah but uh it's a lot it's a lot of i mean we actually <laughs> sounds tried. like we even tried once he said that we said well give us a few give us a month and we'll try to get these two down to one, I think at one point. And we did, and we wrote a script that was, just, and, and he just, he read it. We had to kill a lot of stuff. We had to kill a lot of things. And he, he basically, was, he was, you know, and again, incredibly supportive and generous. And he basically said, like, I love a lot of what you did, but you know, we're going with two movies. <laughs> we're putting all, I miss, lot, I miss this and I miss that. I understand why you got it, but let's, so anyway. But What was uh, the hardest thing to kill guys? Well, the truth is we can't. We can't tell we can't you. Because tell they you. may come back. They've probably been shifted along into one of the subsequent movies. Okay. <laughs> there was there was a moment where Jim went off and wrote. Are we, are we led to talk about the, the. The script that didn't. The script that didn't get made. Yeah, because he the, talked about it. Publicly. Okay. Yeah. Jim went off and he was like, wait, I'm going to. He took like 10 days and he went off and he wrote a whole script. Whole script. 
um, and some amazing stuff in it. But uh, it basically would have would have created yet another movie another before movie. this before the yeah. the saga even launches. So we just he just threw the whole thing away. He had and to. This, it was a, an idea that came from you know the process of the of setting up the world and and the RDA returning and this idea came up I, that I don't want to get into, but Jim loved it. And he, and so we went down that road, went down that road and we argued back and forth, whether it fit. Uh, and he's, that's when he said, no, no, I, I love this. I, I want to, you know, I'm going to go off and write it. And he wrote an entire script. And, and by the way, it was great. It was like mind blowing Jim Cameron stuff in there. You know, the thing is and that everybody knows Jim Cameron is brilliant on the screen. Right. Um, but very few people know how brilliant he's on the page. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe his scripts well, he, are published and people read them and everything. But, you know, he, he was a writer before he was a director and he considers himself a writer. And he is. And uh, and anyway, but he, he he just felt like or we I guess we all did. But he felt like uh, as great as the script was, it just didn't fit in the story we were telling. It just didn't, you know, wasn't going to be part of it. Because there's this balance between moving the story forward. And keeping it so dynamic and compelling, which he does, um, uh, but also fondling the details. And and I think people don't necessarily think of Jim Cameron as a as a um, character based storyteller, but he absolutely is. Uh, that's really I I think the secret sauce, right? I mean, you it, it's it's unabashedly emotional. People care about the characters people care desperately what happens to them and um and within you know and then within that there's this incredible uh visual storytelling um that works together with the characterizations so it's that it's that mix it's that combination of the two guys let's let's dive into some scenes like we, we start the film with jake bringing us up to speed on how he and pandora have changed over the the 14 years or so since the first film how early on did you land on this idea that Jake and Natiri were going to be parents in this one and uh, that instead of meeting them again as these warriors kind of willing to die for their cause, nothing to, you know, nothing to live for in a way beyond their cause, now they were going to have a family and that was going to bring complications. They had something to protect. Well, that was an idea that Jim brought into the room. They were, uh, that was, and he came in basically with a, a family structure, didn't he? Absolutely. But I'm really glad that you put it the way you did, because this idea of Jake and Natiri as fearless warriors uh, who who were madly in love with each other, but now they're parents. And so they have everything to lose. And there's a different kind of fear, a hugely different challenge for them. And when the RDA comes back. So I think that that was, it was the, the idea. basis for it. Yeah. And we always like our first beachhead was, OK, we'll start with date night. Not only are Jake and Natiri um, married with this family, which, by the way, we need to kind of introduce one by one because it's complicated with an adoption and then Spider as a kind of wannabe adoption. Um, but uh, you've got two parents who need to get out on their ecron and break away because <laughs> because of the because they've got these needy kids at the house, and so yeah. you I mean, want to make them relatable. Like you want people in the audience to feel like, oh, I get that. They're just like us. Well, when we first had kids, we had to basically carve out uh, almost with draconian measures a date night. You know, like <laughs> Saturday night, I don't care. The house is on fire. We're going out, dinner and a movie. You know? And so that kind of thing we brought into it. So so there was that. Yeah. The other thing, too, that I think Jim has said this, but it's uh, true, is that, you know, they are fearless warriors, as you say. And now they're terrified. They're terrified. You know, Jake is desperately trying to keep his family together, keep his kids alive. You know, uh, uh, Natiri's terrified that they're going to, they, you know, she's losing her clan and she's terrified of losing her kids. And so uh, I was also, also part of the thing that Jim brought into it. So it's like, let's, you know, I mean, anyone who's ever raised teenagers it knows it's, just, it's a scary business. <laughs> so uh, he has a family, a large blended family. And he and his wife, Susie Amos, are, you know, very dedicated to each other and to the family. And so he brought all that into it at the top. 
And you mentioned Spider there. I find it so interesting that in, in the midst of everything else that's going on in this film, you have this almost Mowgli-like character who over the course of the film is going to start to become torn between nature versus nurture, the Navi tribe who essentially raised him and the human blood that runs in his veins. Um, actually, when we were talking about uh, Caesar from, from Apes at the beginning there, I, there's a little bit of overlap that it occurred to me. How did the character of Spider come to be? What was so fascinating to you guys about the idea of dropping in this, this orphaned addition to the family? Well, go ahead. Dude. Yeah, there were, I can think of two things right off the bat. One is, uh, uh, it's, well, a lot of things really. One of the first things we all uh, responded to was kind of the wish fulfillment because everyone was so in love with Avatar and this idea of Pandora and and uh, and the Navi and and wouldn't it be cool to drop a, a human boy into that and not a human who's going to try to you know kill uh, burn down home tree or whatever but someone just wants to you know be part of it it's kind of a so he is very much a Mowgli character so we all really responded to that um, and also too it's just it's a, just a fascinating he's a fascinating character because he is uh very much caught between two worlds at the top although you know he he really feels like he's part of the sully family and uh but then once you introduce quaritch as his father who reappears then it takes on a fascinating kind of pull away from the family he's the only family he's really known but it's very primal you know it's in his dna so there was all the spider stuff, but then the other thing that we loved about it was how it, this is going to, you know, how it humanizes Quaritch in a way yeah. from the first movie to this movie. It's like, you really feel like, oh my God, now he's, this is a whole side of this character that we didn't see in the first movie, even though he's still very much Quaritch other than the fact that he's blue, you know, and 10 feet tall. But, um, but, you know, you can tell that he's also torn. And so then over time, we realized too thematically how solid it all was because it's so much, the movie's so much about family and, and fathers and sons and parents and children. And, uh, and so I don't know, it, it, it really started to gain momentum before we ever actually sat down and started writing it. And it, it brought forward other, other kind of deep themes in the movie, like this idea of, uh, you know, just the tension between Natiri and Spider. Yeah. And and so he's a so Spider's human and Natiri, you know, can the different species get along? And we obviously we're very interested in this through through, through everything, yeah. Uh apes and um but racism plays into it. So can Natiri accept Spider even though he's pink? And um uh and what kind of shame does Spider have about his pinkness? You know, um, I mean, pink is in quotes. I mean, that's what she says in the movie. That's what she says in the movie. That's so interesting because the same idea comes up when we get to the Metcaina and that whole segment of the film. The Navi is not one big homogenized, you know, mass. There's there's evolutionary differences between those guys, and there's also cultural differences, and it comes out in in this conflict. I, I've got to ask though before we get into that segment of the film. You know, we, we've touched on Quaritch. I had to like stifle a cheer when I, I realized the way you were bringing him back and and the sort of beauty of giving this guy who hated the Na'vi a second life in the body of one and, and now he's hell bent on revenge. Was there a eureka moment when you realized that uh, you were going to be able to bring him back and, and that was that was the way to do it? Or, or how did his character come to be in this movie? Again, Jim came in with this idea. Yeah. He had seen it. And so he he told us how he was going to do it. And he'd already figured out the soul drive and the way the Selfridge, you know, um uh moment so that we so that he so Quaritch had downloaded his soul soul drive in case he died ahead of time. But it was in the room that we I think figured out technically how to how to get that across and how to bring the audience in. And in particular, the scene at the ruins where Quaritch comes. And he sees, you know, his own death and he comes across his own remains there and he's got his skull yeah. and Quartz processing his human death and separating himself from that human um, was just a huge dramatic turn. And also bringing back because there is also Neytiri's, uh feather. 
That's right. Arrow. Yeah. Her arrow, right. right? So, so then you have this idea, um, you know, it's really the visualization of the idea for the audience, for Quaritch, and also for the kids. Because their spider, you know, uh, Kiri's mom killed Spider's dad. Right in the last movie, and from the kids, from the uh, from Sully's kids, it's like mom killed Spider's dad. I mean, there's right. a lot going on in that scene. So, uh, um, but it's a really good question because that's a great example of Jim coming into the room with an idea, and uh, some of it had been figured out. But then I wouldn't say there was a eureka moment because, to be honest, when he first presented an idea, there was. By the way, uh, I think there was like a long pregnant pause from the four of us <laughs> when he brought us. And we just kind of like, how is that going to work? What? what is that going to look like? And, I mean, you know, will the audience buy it? Well, there's a lot, there was a lot not said in that moment that we were all kind of thinking at the same time. <laughs> and, uh, and, but it was, again, once you get into it and kind of just commit to it and roll with it. Then a lot of the complexity from that decision has things you were talking about really started to emerge. And, uh, and what would it be for Quaritch and the recoms to discover Pandora in their blue bodies? So you get kind of uh, the reverse of what happened to Jake or, or an echo of what happened to Jake in avatar one, but what's your rooting interest? You know, it's interesting because the audience, you're getting some satisfaction out of them, you know, taking off their boots and running barefoot and getting their ecron. But on the other hand, you don't want to be empowering courage. So it's a it's a it's a great kind of dramatic uh complexity, I think, that the audience is is so involved in that. Spider being captured following one of the film's many brilliant action sequences, Jake and his family, they realize that they have to kind of go into exile to protect the rest of the clan, uh, aware that kind of Quaritch might be able to extract their whereabouts from Spider. So they end up going to to join the Metkaina, the reef people who uh, with whom we'll spend a lot of this movie. The Sullies being by the ocean opens up the story to this really fascinating thread about the hunting of these whale-like creatures. Again, apologies if you're listening, James, because I'm going to mispronounce this. The Tolkun, I believe. No, you got it. Okay, that's good. <laughs> One of the kids, Loak, befriends one, um, and this whale in particular has been made an outcast from the pack. It turns out that the humans colonizing Pandora have begun killing these creatures because the tissue from their brains can be harvested for its anti-aging properties. It's something that's in keeping with what James was exploring in the first film with, with unobtainium. Human greed and that insatiable lust for profit, to go back to our earlier conversation about the threads between your films... Uh, it seems to be kind of a recurring thing that you return to, like, and it always leads to violence. In Jurassic World, despite the events of the previous films, the park was open because there was a buck to be made. Can you talk to me about like the development of this whole sequence and and yeah, that message that's alive in James's films and it's alive in yours that our greed can be our downfall as a species. I would go even further to say that uh, in many ways, you know, we are the bad guys. I mean, if you look at the history of the human race. You know, the destruction we've left behind going back probably to the Neanderthals, I guess. I, you know, I don't know. It, it, so, so there's, there's that. Uh, but, but yeah, capitalism, you know, it's, it, it, it's just, it happens all the time. And just this morning, I read an article uh, that uh, Exxon Mobil uh, was way ahead of understanding and researching uh, global warming. I mean, they, they, in, in many ways, their research was the best research in the world. And, uh, and yet what did they do with this information? This is years ago. Yeah. That this is years ago. Piece, right. Yeah. I read yeah. the same piece. Oh, I, I just read it this morning. But anyway, and, you know, and then they, of course, they went through this whole, uh, process of trying to cover it up or misrepresent the information so that it wasn't that bad, but ultimately it was about their stock price. So, you know, why do we do that? You know, and, and I, when we were researching apes, people kept um, keeping it very secret and denying that they had still had primates in cages. Yeah, we called labs. we called universities to say, hey, we're working on it. We didn't tell them it was Planet of the Apes. We say we're working on a movie. Da, 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 da. And uh, this one person said, well, we don't have any primates here. 
It's not, it's just a, you know, it's falling. But this was a, you know, a doctor at a major university research student. And, and I went, oh, God, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. He said, no, no, no. And but this is why I said, what do you have? We, we tried to have a conversation. And then, of course, like two weeks later, there's this big thing that, you know, there was a big protest because they had primates in their lab. The guy just come right out and said, no, we don't have any. So anyway, uh, I don't know. I, you know, again, it, it, I, I, we can't speak for James, but for us, it, you know, it, it's just, again, it, it's one of those things where it's right, right. We really set out to do, you know, we're not political flag wavers per se, but we, you know, we, we want to tell a really good story and, and about characters that audiences can, you know, get into and, for and such but we want to tell stories that have meaning well so we, that's yeah. always kind of the the yes that's a good point yeah just for your screenwriting listeners you know we do ask ourselves before we go into something what's the point of making this movie other than to make money why tell this story why 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 tell this story now you know what relevance does it have what meaning does it have meaning you know other than selling tickets um, and we, we have, we, we really don't write anything. Not anymore. We, we anyway. <laughs> I guess so, sometimes <laughs> writers have to take a job, certainly early in our careers, that was the case. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, uh, and, and I think that the audience, um, whether or not they know they're, they're getting this message or whether or not that's why they're buying a ticket, um, they they can smell if you're just kind of trying to sell the ticket and you if have it's just to if say. it's just pure commercialism and sometimes it works and and uh, but uh, but there's a heedlessness and a voraciousness with which you know the human race is using up the resources around us and um, and we're in denial about it and so you go to a movie like this and it reawakes your awe for what's what's right there. In front of you. I mean, you could go to the movie and see what's what's uh, what's on Pandora, or you could look out your window and you see the birds and the trees. Um, but uh, there's nothing like viscerally being in the character of a Talcoon, or or the characters who love the Talcoon as their brothers and sisters, the Metkayina, to really understand that every that the, you know the whaling industry which is alive and well is something that is, uh, you know, you could talk about it till you're blue in the face, but to see it. It's a very apt phrase. Yes. That's funny. To see it and to feel it is, um, is a much more powerful way to get those ideas across. Yeah. And I think it really comes to bear in, there's a beat in that final action sequence that um, is so incredible where the whale, the outcast whale is sort of, smashing around in fury on the ocean floor ready to kind of come to save the day and i, I know it might sound silly but that that hit something primal for me and uh yeah. the rage at the kind of current real life situation around yeah climate and the oceans wow um it was such a good encapsulation of that yeah i love that and i, I i'll i mean i'll say it this way too I, I i think that maybe partially your response comes from the fact that uh you and we all know that greed is, is bad. We know that consumerism is helping destroy the planet. We know that, you know, it, it's not, it's not fair. It's, it's actually ignorant to, you know, in terms of what we're doing, but we feel like we can't do anything about it. I mean, it's just too big, you know, and, and the monster's just too big to defeat. And so a lot of us, you know, people do what they can in terms of their own footprints and so forth, or volunteering or whatever they can, but, it's it's so it's somewhere we all know that that's what's going on and then if you can then give some kind of hope and outlet and and and, and you know an entertainment then you know uh i think it's and visualize it's what really. it's what it is to fight it yeah you can actually fight back you know with caesar too is i go back to that it's like you know when he stands up and says no um you know, that actually came, the germ of that came from just studying the old Planet of the Apes films from the 60s and 70s, because there was a mythology that the first ape who spoke said the word no. But what he's really saying also is that no to, no to cages, no to research, not anymore. 
you know, which I think helped resonate with a lot of the audiences. That action scene that, that we're kind of touching on, this entire segment is just pure adrenaline. There's so many layers to it. There's such musicality to it in the way that it moves through tempos right up into that crescendo at the end. What can you tell me about writing this scene and keeping everything trackable for the audience so cleanly when there's a kabillion things happening all at once above the surface, beneath the surface? How did you approach it? Well, first, of all, I'm so glad you used the musical analogy because it is kind of like a symphony, you know, and then you 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 kind of escalate and you bring in instruments. But there's a lot of plate spinning going on. Um, and so um, Jim says that there's three drafts. The first is the page. The second is when he directs it with his actors and also, um, you know, with Weta, <laughs> which is another complex idea. Um, and then the third is in the cutting room, right? So on the page, you know, one of the great things about Jim is that, and we do this too, is we keep, you know, there's no, we try to keep um, the action character-based. So if something's happening, you want the audience to understand what's happening and how it's affecting the characters, how it's tightening the screws on the characters or liberating them, whatever the movement is emotionally, where it's coming. And so for that reason, that's building in a certain way. And then the action itself is building in a certain way. Now, this may change in the iterations through to, through to cutting. Um, but for the page, you want it to feel complete, like a great read. Um, and and all I can say is it's very complicated. You know, you have <laughs> outlines and beats. You you read it, you know, you print it out. You read it. You realize it's not building correctly. You realize you you forgot that this that this thread that you were building over here you forgot about. It needs to be nurtured, or that you or that it or that it peaked too soon. So it is very detail oriented work. It's yeah. For example, uh, sometimes we'll just just keep on a, on a legal pad track of how many pages it's been since we saw Nateri, for example. Yeah. Or since, since, you know, we saw, we checked in with Spider and then, and, and those sequences. And so, and then like you were saying, there's just so much going on. So a lot of it, it's just, it's, it's, and Jim kind of kids me about this, but a lot of times it's just math, you know, it's just like a rhythmic <laughs> dick. And so, you know, a lot of times I say, I just don't think the math is right in this sequence. And we'd look down at it and we'd break it down and say, well, okay, let's, Let's let's just make sure we do touch bases, and and yet it's got to still kind of build in tension and build in in tempo. But it's not it's not always just you know like a uh, uh, a rocket ship up in one direction. You've got to have downtime and, and give the moment uh, of levity or a moment of a breather for the audience, and you kick back into it. And and it's so, like you know, don't forget that Kiri is is on deck, you know you know, handcuffed, yeah. uh, you know, keep your eye on, on that. So that happens on the page, even though in the editing room, yeah. you know, you have, you have safety nets down the road, yeah. but it has to work on first. On yeah. Page. And then is this true? Is this what they're doing? Feel true and, and true to their character. And, and Well, they have this line or they have this moment. Is that equal to the moment? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it underwhelming? Is it overwhelming? Is it, you know, it has to, um, it has to all come together. <laughs> It is very complicated. And speaking of things coming together, you know, we, we talked at the top of this about the main difference between the Jake we meet in the first film and the Jake we meet here is he's terrified. He's got something to lose and he's got a family to protect. And it's so interesting that we leave this movie with him having failed in that mission. He loses a child. Natiri loses a child. And as an aside, wow, Zoe Saldana in that scene, like the, the, the sort of howls of grief. God, chilling. But um, yeah, can, can you tell me about like why it was that, that that death had to happen and sort of different iterations of the script over time? Was there ever a version in which that death didn't take place? Or uh, yeah, what was the rationale? We always knew Natayan was going to die. Did, yeah. And we had to keep him a real character. Um, he couldn't be, he couldn't be just kind of uh a setup to die. You had to you had to be surprised by his death. Well, the reason to kill him is that the stakes are real. You know, it, it lets the audience know um, that, uh, you know, the danger is out there, that we're willing to go there. 
Um, it's it's good for the. I mean, it was very hard. It was very hard to kill. Yeah, we day. we wrote the, we get, the we first time emotion. his death scene. We we were sitting in his very we room crying. Yeah, it was like I can't believe. Maybe we, maybe we can keep him alive. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't <laughs> want to. Uh, but but uh, yeah, I mean, part of it I think goes to the overall what uh, feeling of Avatar, and then you know bringing bringing courage back one of the concerns that came from the room was well if we bring him back will the audience think there's no real consequences in these films you know i mean he's dead but now he's back you know and and so was everybody going to come back and so anyway it, uh, it, it the stakes have to, it has to be real and, and they, you know uh and you have to and by the way this is a saga it's not just one film so uh it's also it it just keeps the plates the emotional tension spinning into the next films as well uh i also think uh, not to speak for jim but he you know this idea then of the re reconnection to natayam in that final through awa through awa and it's yeah. a way of reminding the audience just how powerful awa is and what a beautiful place pandora is and uh and and so I think that strategically also was a reason to to uh, and and uh, it pushes. I mean, it does a lot of other things. It pushes Loak's story forward. You know, his his the fact that he blames himself. I mean, he's the one that said you've got to go back, and he, you know. And so anyway, and there's this great shot. I don't know if you picked it up or not because there's just so much to take in, but. You know, there's there's literal blood on Loak's hands at the end when when Natayim dies. I mean, literally, there's blood on his hands, and it's really, it's uh, and so it does feed into Loak's journey through these movies. I guess. I well, say. all of the, yes, Loak's and all of theirs too. I yeah, mean, yeah. It's gonna ripple. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna ripple. His you know, <laughs> <lot of> ripple. <laughs> the effect of his death is gonna ripple forward. When you describe those ripples. Is, is there a darkness to come in Avatar 3 because of Nateam's death? Like, presumably we now can't move forward without the repercussions of that tonally on, on the films to come. How would you describe Avatar 3 in terms of, uh, yeah, the consequences of, of where we leave things here? I would say those ripples are there. They're, you know, you never forget Nateam. Um, and uh, however... Uh, and there's darkness to come, but there's also a lot of lightness and wonder, um, an amazing adventure. So uh, I, I know I, this, I, I'm sorry, I can't be more specific with you. <laughs> um, I always sound like, uh, I don't know, P.T. Barnum when I try and describe the next movie, <laughs> movies to come because it's just so big. Um, but there's a lot of excitement and and fun to be had as surprises well. too, uh, you know, a lot of surprises, uh, but I don't know. These interviews are, are not are the, the great uh, safety net for being interviews. If you ask something really difficult, we can just simply say, we can't talk about it because it's in the next movie. <laughs> <laughs> is the same true um, just because we've talked about it so much over the course of this conversation is the same true about the new apes movie, which um, I, I believe you guys wrote the screenplay for that. Am I right in thinking? Well, actually it's, it's, it's cool. What happened? We, uh, we weren't actually available to write the screenplay. And, uh, and so Josh Friedman, who worked with us on the Avatar movies, yeah. wrote the screenplay and we were producers on it and we developed it with him and with uh, Wes Ball, the director. And then uh, Joe Hartwick Jr. is Wes's producing partner. And, uh, and just by the way, Jason Reed, who produced Mulan, which we wrote, is now also involved. And so it's a great creative team. But anyway, so uh, uh, um, so we're very excited about it. We're, we're about uh, less than three weeks away from finished shooting. And uh, it's very, very exciting. And and uh, I don't I'm, it's funny. I, I don't really know. We, were, we had an interview with and one of the Disney executives was a PR executive was listening in and we started to talk about apes and she's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> well, like not that we couldn't talk about, I couldn't reveal. You can't reveal what's happening, but it's, 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 uh, it's fun. Uh, we ran it. We were at a function yesterday and Joe Letary who runs Weta and he's, you know, those guys are geniuses. They do luckily for us, uh, all the apes movies and, and 
avatars. But uh, uh, we were telling, talking him through the story yesterday because he hadn't read the script yet. And anyway, he he got real excited, which then really got us excited. So, you know, the thing is, Caesar was definitely the glue, as you might imagine, for for uh, the reboot. So now that Caesar's gone, it, we had to figure out a new way to begin the story. And I really think we figured. Yeah, we've out. got a great way, a great way into it. It's exciting. New characters, you know, uh, and not exactly. I've read some stuff online. I try not to read too much of that, but uh, uh, in terms of speculation about, yeah, you know, yeah. But at any rate, uh, I think people are going to be surprised and 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 how we've approached it. I can't wait. And I'm obviously really excited for those future Avatar movies as well. Um, I should say as well, Amanda, I've noticed over the course of our conversation, you have the best mug I've ever seen on one of these uh, tables. Uh, <laughs> I love the hand. Rock the oh my God. I think it was the first movie of yours I saw. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see the... Yeah, there it is. Shut the fuck up. I'm trying to watch The Hand That Rocked the Cradle. By the way, that was just something that we found online. <laughs> that existed already. I'm going to use that for an interview. That's bad. I, well, I gave you the thing. The thing is, we, we you know, we're writers, so we would never really get swag on any of So we've written all these movies. We don't get anything unless we find it online. And we do have coffee mugs, pretty much one for each of our movies. And... Uh, uh, at any rate, so yeah, so we found that one online. It's like, oh my God, someone made that up, you know, and hey, there it is. Well, I hope there's many more movies and therefore coffee mugs to come. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for this. This has been an absolute blast. And congrats again on Avatar The Way of Water. Well, thank you. Thank had you a, very had much. A lot of fun. Thank it's you. It's been much. great talking to you. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.